Peace in the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really, really appreciate it. Please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and most importantly, share these episodes. Share them with your family, with your friends. Tell your friends, your family, and your coworkers, and your neighbor, the guy you see in traffic, the guy who's walking down the street, uh, the guy you meet at the, or the gal that you meet at the uh, store, or at the, when you get the coffee and you say, you know, you ask them, you see them on their headphones, and you, you find out that they're uh, listen to a podcast and ask them, hey, have you checked out Captain Hunter's podcast? You know, that, that's one of the best ways that we can help to make sure that these episodes are going on and growing on. You can support the podcast also through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. All of those are CPTL Hunter. PayPal also is C A P T H U N T E R, Capt Hunter. And make sure that you're doing all of those as well. Um, you can hit me up on cptlhunter at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram, cptlhunter, Twitter, cptlhunter, Facebook, Captain Hunter's Podcast. Every Monday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have a, a new episode, live episode, where people can call in, chime in, uh, write their notes, and just hear, you know, different experts or even just different, you know, random conversations. Not always going to have an expert. Sometimes you just want to talk to normal, everyday people and just have a conversation about what's going on in the world and how we're coping and how we're living and how we're surviving. With the pandemic, with the police shootings, with the, uh, the resurgence of, of, uh, of uh, white nationalism, with the, uh, with the politics, there's always something for us to discuss. And so we're looking to get into all that type of thing in Captain Hunter's podcast. Um, this particular episode with Adam Pasiak, Pasiak, Adam Pasiak. <laughs> uh, this particular episode, um, I held on to it for a little bit. Uh, for, for a little bit, uh, think it's time to release it now because of the recent incident that happened in Brooklyn Center, uh, Minnesota. Dante Wright or Dante Wright was shot by former officer Kim Porter uh, or Potter. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's just time to understand what's going on with this. And so many times we, we focus on what happens to the families and to the victims. And I've done a, a couple of episodes on the trauma that, uh, that is induced upon families. I talked to Michael Bell. I talked to a, d- a number of different people uh, who've experienced uh, tragic losses within their families. But we have to also understand that police officers are humans as well. They deal with pain, they deal with trauma. And uh, we're going to look and speak with a former police officer, Adam Paziak, uh, who is a former police officer himself. He went through a traumatic incident. He then uh, retired from law enforcement, went back to school, completed his Ph.D., and now is helping other officers deal with their pain, their trauma, and all that type of thing. Uh, we can't have the people, whether you're, they're losing their jobs because of the economy, whether they're, they're uh, dealing with stress and depression because of... Um, COVID or just a police officer who is, or not just a police officer, but police officers who are dealing with stress and trauma because of their jobs, um, who are taking their lives, any of these, any and all of these people that I've just named in their lines of profession uh, need help, need assistance from the things that they're dealing with. And so Adam Paziak wrote a book called After the Smoke Clears. Um... Surviving the police shooting and analysis, the post officer involved uh, uh, in the treating uh, um, shooting trauma. Surviving the police shooting and analysis of the post officer involved shooting trauma. It's in the second edition uh, after the smoke clear surviving the police. So this is available uh, through Charles Thomas's uh, publishing house. Uh, 
and I'm sure that uh, it's available on Amazon and anywhere else that books are sold. So make sure that you pick up a copy of that. I'm not going to delay the time. We know that we're dealing with a lot of what's going on. As I mentioned, Army veteran who's pepper sprayed, uh, the traumatic shooting and really, really unfortunate shooting, um, accidental shooting in my estimation of uh, Duante Wright, Dante Wright um, in uh, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. It's, it's not a homicide, not a murder. Um, I, I, I doubt very highly if they, they'll send that particular officer, Kim Potter, to jail, but we'll see. Um, anyway, let's get going with the episode, everyone. Here is the episode with Adam Paziak, licensed clinical social worker, talking about how police officers survive the emotional trauma after a police shooting. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today. experience working with uh police issues it looks like oh uh, well a few a few <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i was uh i was a uh, um you know an officer for 24 years retired mm-hmm. as a captain um you know so a few years <laughs> taught in defensive tactics i did uh, some training with uh implicit bias uh, i was instructor at our police academy um you know so did some things here and there you know yeah well, it looks like you still stay involved with things too so that's neat yeah well i'm trying to this is my way of staying connected you know yeah. so, <laughs> well you cover it looks like a variety of topics on your podcast i do yeah yeah so you know i try to you know my tagline is bridging the divide between the police and the community so i can't just always talk about police stuff and what the police should do better i gotta talk about what the community needs to do better you know so so uh yeah it's kind of a two-way thing right it's kind of a two-way thing yeah and particularly for for you know the african-american community you always want to point the finger but sometimes we got to look at ourselves and say hey listen you know what are, what are we doing you know you know uh and so uh it's always it's always uh a touchy subject but it's one that has to be addressed you know can't can't always point to and say they need to do this they need to do that well we need to do some things so. Yeah, I think that's that's easy to get. Uh, I just actually had this conversation with my son the other day. Uh, he was telling me about what uh, they, like us, the parents, <laughs> needed to do differently or whatever. And like, you need to look at also what you contribute to this dynamic, right? Because anytime you have two sides, there's a dynamic and one affects the other. And, you know, uh, so you do have to step back and look. And I agree with exactly what you're saying that there might be some messed up thing going on, but are you feeding into it somehow? And, you know, if you are, then you can at least change things on your end. And, uh, and maybe if, if the out- that changes the outcome right there, right? So, um, you know, sometimes it's not always so clean and easy like that, but, uh, but there is a lot of times a very simple, okay, yeah, if you don't do this, then things don't play out like this. 
Yeah. Right. Just like if you don't come out of your car yelling and screaming at the, the cop when he pulls you over, uh, you probably don't get confrontational right back to you. <laughs> it, it, listen, car, it's only <laughs> you got your hands on the steering wheel, and yeah. uh, you know you're kind of polite and everything else. Like, yeah, you might still get a ticket, but uh, you know, generally things go a little smoother. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That dynamic seems to be lost, and I did want to ask you about about the trauma that officers face. Uh, you know, we'll get into this, but the officers face, um, you know, after some type of confrontation like that, the video goes viral and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, somebody just sent me the, the viral uh, video now of this nine-year-old who was uh, handcuffed and pepper sprayed in Rochester, New York there. So again, you know, if this kid isn't acting a fool, you know, I, I realize she's got some mental Ill, illness things going on and, and everything like that, but, you know, the officers did... I think what they had to do, you know, from, from the surface of the video and everything. But but unfortunately, community is saying, you know, oh, she's nine, they got to do better. They, okay, well, okay. <laughs> got to slow down, relax here, you know, so. But I understand that you understand that, but many, many people just don't want to hear that. You know, they just see the, the age of the girl and say, cops ought to be just supermen and, and mind readers and all that kind of stuff, so. And be uh, completely competent with handling mental health issues. So yeah, yeah. Which on top of it already. Yeah, it's a master level degree education in handling uh, in handling mentally disturbed persons. And, and okay. <laughs> now I would tell you, even with your PhD in psychology, I'm not sure I know how to handle something like that. <laughs> I can imagine. You know. I would. I wouldn't expect somebody that's uh, a road cop to be able to figure that one out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and unfortunately, we do what we know to do, and that's put people in restraints, put them down and use the tools on our belt. So if we want, and to a certain extent, I agree that, I agree that if we want something different, we have to train them differently and prepare them differently or, or send, um, um, you know, counselors to every single mental health illness calls, either in lieu of the police or along with the police. So I guess that's- Yeah, that's gonna be an interesting uh, bridge to cross because I think, you know, uh, what, what, has happened for a lot of communities is police have been like this utility uh, knife thing that it just does everything, right? And uh, so, and of course you you can do a lot of things okay, but you're not going to do everything really well. Um, and you know, so if you say now we want to start bringing in these mental health professionals, which is probably the better way to go, uh, well, they don't do it for free. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, uh, how are you going to do that as a logistics thing? Uh, and probably, you know, most uh, reasonable, reasonable minded mental health professionals are not going to want to go on these violent um, calls. Right. Uh, that's not what most kids, uh, people that go into, you know, uh, any of these uh, helping fields are wanting to do. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say any, but I'm sure I'm sure there's some that are OK with that. But most of us are. Yeah, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah, yeah. They went and work in a nice cushy office. That's what they Yeah, absolutely, right? How can you blame them? Uh, so, you know, so then do you really solve the problem even doing that? Uh, you know, I think it's, it seems like an easy enough solution. Just do this. But as a practical thing, you know, is it really going to work out? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we just kind of jumped into this here. So I appreciate you coming on. I mean, uh, Pasiak, how do you pronounce your uh, last Pasiak. name? Paziak, okay. Yep. Don't worry, everybody. I think everybody in my life has said it wrong. So uh, okay, well, well, just add just add me to the list there. <laughs> yep, yep. 
I, I read something recently. It was uh, on a Polish. It's a Polish name, and it was uh, so it was one of the Polish uh, uh, heritage sites. And it's like I've heard my name pr uh, pronounced so many different ways. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, would you tell us about yourself? And thank you so much for coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. I truly appreciate it. Um, just give us a little uh, background and history about yourself and your education and all that. Uh, well, worked uh, as a police officer for 20, uh, just under 20 years. I didn't quite make it to the full 20. Um, retired as a, as a detective there. Um, and then uh, soon retired as a medic, well, it was a medical retirement. And from there, went back to school, my PhD in psychology, and have been in private practice doing that since, mostly working with um, police and other first responders. Uh, dealing with trauma. Okay. Very good. Very good. And you went to, uh, we both went to Walden there. I saw that you went to Walden. Yeah, I saw we had that connection. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought about going back for my PhD in uh, psychology, but I decided not to. So Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just as another note, did you, I mean, did, uh, so how was that with your, with your uh, state boards? They, they, I mean, they didn't have a problem taking the, taking the, uh, online degree or anything like that at that time when i got it uh so i finished up in 2012 i think the change happened in 2013 with uh walden and the online degree or the state of michigan and the online degrees where they had different uh requirements so i got in under the wire on that one okay because i looked at uh, i think I, i'm not sure about connecticut that's where i'm at but i had looked at uh, florida because i thought about moving to florida one time and i know that they did not accept online degrees um either so i know that's probably going to become very problematic for everyone who's going back to school because everybody's doing it online <laughs> you know so yeah probably gonna have some changes coming up in a lot of things right yeah 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 so uh what made you decide to go back for psychology uh how did you choose that um thing? i you know what this i think um if i you know I look back to when i first got out of uh, high school into college i had that idea then um, and then just got away from it. And it, I think what happened is after uh, I was injured on, on duty, um, there were a lot of things that kind of maybe look at things differently, some things that just didn't make sense that I was trying to understand. And so ultimately that kind of, I think, influenced me back into that, that world of psychology, you know, just trying to understand the brain and how things uh, happen like they do and how we process things like we do. So, uh, and I think just as uh, when I was as a detective, you know, I, one of the things that always fascinated me uh, was more of the why of things, you know, why things happen. Why do people do this when, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that's just not really a good decision. And, you know, trying to understand that end of it more. So it was kind of a natural transition, I think, to get back in to get into this field. Um, and ultimately, I think also work with uh, officers that had been experience trauma just you know from my own experience trying to say well here's what i've learned from it to be able to share that with somebody else very good um so you um uh, do you talk about your injury i mean do you talk about it all or or do you mind talking about it yeah uh well so i was involved in a, a duty related shooting in 1998 and uh i mean just there were just a, a series of physical things that happened afterward to try to correct the, the issues and so off of work for a long time and um, just 
understanding how that dynamic plays out with a, you know, an injured officer and their department, um, you know, how that relationship might look, um, what the impact on the officer is and then peers, and especially even on the return to work, you know, what that ultimately, uh, the, the impact of that is as well. Because I think there, there is a, a tendency to <clears throat> react differently to an injured officer when they come back. Um, so, you know, I, I, that, that's a lot of, I think, um, you know, what, what I bring to the, the equation as far as being able to, to share with, with people that are coming to see me. Sure. And having lived through it, I mean, it's gotta be, you know, kind of, uh, not only do you have the education, but you've got the experience. So that's gotta be a, you know, kind of a double plus for people to, and especially as cops, you know, we always want to talk to somebody who wore the uniform, you know? It's, it's, yeah. In theory, it's a great, uh, uh <laughs> thing to put on my resume, but you know, and, and I'm sure you know this, that, uh, cops and general are, are not uh, quick to say, hey, I want to go see a therapist. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's, that's very okay. true, unfortunately, unfortunately. That's a whole different dynamic there that uh, there's that, uh, uh, you know, that mental, mental health professionals and, and law enforcement just, um, you know, I think they, the law enforcement, we tend to look at that as with a kind of a wary eye, right? Like, not, not really sure what they're all about, or if I can trust them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how are you, how is your relationship with other, um, uh, mental health professionals, psychologists, do they, do they, do they look to you for a, a certain level of expertise when dealing with cops or how, how does that go? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could say that necessarily. One of the things that, uh, I, I know that helps me is I do, uh, EMDR work, uh, and that's a, a treatment for trauma. So that's not something that a lot of people do. And so I'll get referrals based on that. I don't know about if, if it's because of, uh, and, and it's kind of known in this area that I do work with police officers. <clears throat> so uh, I'll get referrals just because of that. Like, okay, I don't know if many people know my background or, you know, that I was involved uh, in the things I've been involved in, but just that, you know, yeah, here's this guy in this area, uh, he works with, with cops. So you sent me a really, a really good article uh, that you and another author uh, wrote, uh, and that is, forgive me, I'm going to butcher this name. I don't have it pulled up in front of me. It's, uh, it, it has to do with, uh, uh, you know, just the male uh, gender roles in policing, for, for lack of better terms, right? right. And how we've got to be this tough guy, this John Wayne type of personality that, uh, and, and, you know, as we, as we talked about before, really makes one, one reluctant to go seek the help when they go through a traumatic incident or, or any incident, right? <laughs> they going through situations with your wife or whatever, right? We, right. we don't, we right. don't want to, we don't want to talk to people. So can you talk to a little bit about that? that, that article? Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, again, from my, uh, the experience afterward, uh, you know, just seeing how people just don't talk about things. Uh, so kind of, okay, well, why is this? Why, why what's up with this dynamic? And, uh, you know, and, and so the idea is that, that men in particular are, we're, you know, we're not really good with the emotional piece of things. Um, we just, I don't know, we're just not really socialized to, to really um, have a good grasp of the emotions. Uh, I think there's something that we're, you know, we see as, as a sign of weakness. And, you know, generally we kind of get that uh, teased out of us probably when we're younger and, you know, if we're crying or we're upset about things, you know, our peers aren't really good about uh, offering any kind of support. 
we learn at a early age to, to really not get uh, very expressive with things. And then in the field of police work in specific, it's, it's intensified even more because there's this expectation that you're gonna to respond to things and have this very stoic demeanor, right? So you're not gonna be uh, outwardly showing anything, uh, even though internally you might <laughs> have all kinds of stuff going on, you're conveying this other, other uh, image. And I think this is something that as a, uh, you know, as a practical thing, it probably makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you're getting to uh, a serious accident where you know, they're injured or killed people uh, or you know, some other incident that's really involved uh, um, and, and people are emotionally charged up to have that person that can come in and convey a sense of calm, that, that is a good thing. Um, you know, if you're responding emotionally to this thing, uh, as well as everybody else, that would probably not help things go like they needed to. Um, so, you know, you adapt, you adopt that kind of uh, mentality, you adopt, or you kind of even elevate it a bit from where you start off, even before the job, um, to this other level of, you know, okay, I'm not going to just show any kind of emotion. And then, of course, you still feel the emotions, you still feel this stuff afterward. You know, I mean, when you experience all these different uh, messed up things, and even like you said, even when it's just at home, you know, you've got the situation where your kid's not listening to you, your wife's not uh, not happy with you, um, you know, whatever it might be. Um, okay, well, I don't get this emotional thing. Uh, I'm not allowing myself to get emotionally invested in this stuff. One thing that really kind of jumped out at me in that article is that um, you, you talked about being socialized this way in Western countries. Do you think that this is really a Western type of thing or United States type of thing, American thing, uh, as, as far as our socialization as males? Do you think that that's something that we... I don't know if it's a United States thing. I think it's uh, Western probably. Uh, I, would, I would suspect that uh, if you go to the UK, very similar. Um, and... I don't know, I was in Poland a couple of years ago, I think, uh, well, Polish people, maybe in general, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they're not very emotionally uh, outward, you know, out socially anyway. Um, so I, I don't know where that starts to change if it's, um, you know, if it's just uh, a global kind of a deal, uh, but certainly um, in our culture, for sure, that that seems to be the case, that uh, we really have this, emphasis on um, not appearing weak. You know, if you're a male, you're supposed to be like the John Wayne thing, right? So you're just, uh, you get called to there, just like the uh, the saying about the, uh, what is it, the Texas Ranger thing? Uh, one, one riot, one ranger. One ranger, yeah. <laughs> you know, we kind of adopt that sort of a thing as, as males. We're supposed to be able to get to a situation where we're supposed to be able to, to quickly grasp what's going on and figure it out. Mm. And, yeah. and you know, in reality, we're not really, we're not really prepared to do that. Uh, more, more often than not, I mean, we're not. We don't have the answers to everything. We don't have uh, the knowledge and, and, and the thing that we need to, to fix every problem. But you know, there seems to be this, you know, this thing that gets ingrained in us that we're supposed to. Yeah, yeah. What? Um, so, so talk about some of the challenges that um, people, particularly officers. Uh, go through when they deal with, look at a, a traumatic event, whether it's a shooting, uh, a car accident, um, 
uh, you know, a dead baby. Um, I can, let me just tell a story right quick here. Uh, so, you know, I was fairly new on the job and uh, we get a call, uh, you know, about a baby not breathing. So I'm the first officer to respond there. And we were the first responders, right? We got there before the, the medics. So I walk into, actually, the, the woman met me at the bottom of the stairs and literally threw the baby at me and said, my baby's not breathing. Tried to catch the baby in the air and I bring her in the house and start doing the CPR and everything like that. Uh, doing the best I could and you know medics got there not long after and long story short the baby did die so the next day I had just happened to go in I was working the midnight shift I go home uh, sleep for a little while and you know 12 one o'clock or so I go into the PD I think I was picking up my check or something I don't know what I, I don't know why I went there <laughs> but uh but uh the quartermaster was the head of a unit I don't even know the name of the unit now uh, I think we've re revamped it two or three times since then, but it was, you know, basically, you know, some type of emotional support unit for police officers. Uh, and uh, he was the head of that particular unit that we had. So he calls, he pulls me in the office and, you know, and says, you know, I was meaning to call you, but I was going to give you some time to sleep, but I see you're here now. And I just want to see how you're doing, you know, after the, after the baby died last night. And uh, I was really okay. I, I mean, I don't think I have any emotional lingering effects to today, but I was more impressed that they actually cared that this mm -hmm. that he actually pulled me in the office and that meant a lot to me at, at that time yeah was, that's pretty I, cool yeah it's probably on the job maybe maybe a year or two or something along those lines so mm -hmm. um so can you just talk once again just about about you know the emotional uh or you know and even physiological responses that people have when they see these types of events yeah absolutely that's you know that's uh that's impressive mm -hmm. that your, your agency did that because i think a lot of agencies um don't and you know it's almost like dismissed like why would you need to talk to somebody <laughs> um, hey what's wrong with you are you weak yeah <laughs> because it's a messed up thing of course i would like to talk to somebody right um and you know not everybody's going to be you know the, the thing with trauma which is which is kind of interesting is that um not everybody exposed to a traumatic event ultimately develops ptsd and so you think about that and you say okay well why would that be uh, if it's if it's the, the event, then everybody should develop PTSD as a result of it, right? And basically, kind of what I have kind of learned uh, in my experience working with uh, a lot of people is that it's not necessarily the event; it's what you attach to it, right? And then, and if you look at for a lot of people that struggle with uh, like a, that baby call. Um, why would they struggle with that? Well, you could say, well, it's because, I mean, here's this infant that, that died, right? So um, that shouldn't have happened. Um, well, if you, if you processed it as you did everything that you could, and, you know, unfortunately this just happened, you would be okay with that. It would still be a sad event. So you would be able to, but you'd be able to process it just that way and be done with it. But if you thought, if I'd have got here a few minutes sooner, or if I'd have got, you know, if I'd have done this, or if I whatever, right, that starts to change the way that you you process this thing, and it starts to become something that lingers longer. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of us we learn, you know, we start to have this expectation of, you know, you, you get um, called to a scene you arrive, you fix things, you save people, you do whatever, right? This is how we start to see ourselves. And when it doesn't work out that way, that's, that's something that can kind of mess with, uh, uh, you know, an officer's uh, mentally. So, you know, the, the things that uh, uh, along the lines of that, uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting too far away from your original question, but um, 
but you just you just start to look at things differently. You start to react differently. You start to you know process a lot of other stuff differently. And you know, and, and unfortunately, because we're not talking about it to anybody, uh, because we think we're we got a good grip on it, or or we're not supposed to to get into these kinds of conversations with people, um, then it just makes the problem worse. Yeah, um, and so we get these uh, this signs and symptoms of post traumatic, you know, stress disorder, lack of sleep. Uh, can you run through some of those a little bit for us, so people know? What yeah, so the, the the sleep thing, the uh, so you've got flashbacks. That's that's probably one of the more telling signs of it. Um, you have, uh, and, and that could be, you know. Uh, visual things that could be uh, smell things it could be any of your senses really getting kind of triggered um, hyper vigilance is a big one so you're just constantly on edge uh, and reacting you know, uh, and probably over reacting to things um, because you're already in this kind of heightened state right so uh, noises or more additional stressors would be things that people would potentially overreact to uh, one of the things that I know for myself that started to happen was avoidance type of things. You start to avoid uh, places, you start to avoid people, you start to, to do things differently. So then depressed mood and anxiety can be part of it. So there are a lot of different things that uh, physically start to happen for you, um, you know, after exposure to something like this. And uh, again, if you, you, you know, you could work on it. You can go to a therapist, you can go to your doctor and talk about maybe medication. Uh, you can start to do those kinds of things and that would help with a lot of the stuff. But instead, you know, I think because of the culture, the way it is sometimes, what we do is we find something that works and that's uh, socially acceptable, which tends to be alcohol, right? So alcohol is gonna knock you out and help you sleep. Alcohol is gonna help you to where you don't think about things, uh, quiet your brain a little bit, so that uh, you know whatever's going on isn't there anymore, and uh, you know, and unfortunately, it works pretty well. Uh, but then that leads to other problems potentially. One thing that you said that was really I found really to be interesting is um, what we attach to it to the event, and you mentioned, did we do all that we could have done? And that I think is. I think about that a lot, uh, you know, and on my calls that I do everything that I could have done that I did. I, yeah, did I get there on time that I take the fastest route that I perform CBR long enough. Um, uh, burning buildings should I have run into that building right and so that that is there is there a guilt associated with that uh, as far as guilt triggering well, see that, that one's a tricky one because if you have simply. You know you look at it like a, a, a debriefing thing right where you can look at something, just uh, do a little critique. Did I, did I do what I was trained to do? Did I do the things I was supposed to do? All the you know, little things like that as a learning thing, that can be a helpful experience. Um, you know, next time I'll do this, next time I'll go this way or I'll, you know, kind of, because, you know, there are some things that we never encountered before. <laughs> and, you know, and so we just kind of like, kind of wing it or do whatever we think is going to be the best thing. But then after we, we've done it and we see, oh, holy crap, you know, by doing this, it led to these things that I didn't think about. So next time I'll do this differently, right? So if we did it that, that would be fine. But if we're doing it more of uh, a blaming thing or a shaming thing or a guilt thing, uh, 
that's going to be what messes us up, right? Like if, if uh, you know, let's say in reality, um, you know, we did everything we could have done, but we say, well, if I would have blown this one stop sign, if I would have whatever, I could have got there like three seconds sooner and, um, you know, and then that baby would have lived, right? Um, well, that's not what, what, what led to that, right? So, but we're attaching this and we're kind of putting this blame on ourselves and we're starting to, as a result of that, have this lingering guilt from it that uh, has us hang on to this incident and not let it go, right? I mean, I think to, to say, not let it go, I mean, of course you're gonna remember something like that, but the depth of the feeling that goes with it, right? It will always be a sad memory. You know, I think if you process it in a healthy way, it would just be, a, it would be a sad memory, of course it is. But for people that are processing it in an unhealthy way, it's got this guilt attached to it. It's got this other thing attached to it, this really powerful emotional piece attached to it. And, uh, and that's where, you know, the, those types of things are the things that we struggle with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You talk about the, in, the ineffectiveness of, uh, well, I, I guess, I don't even know if ineffectiveness is the right word. I mean, we don't know the, if, if it's uh, these talk therapy groups or sessions after, a, a traumatic incident are actually helpful. Can you talk about that a little bit? We don't really know, right? The science isn't conclusive. You know, it, and, and that's, it seems to be that if you, um, like if you were to talk to people afterward, most people would say it helped. I think that just as a, an anecdotal thing, most people would just kind of say this was a beneficial thing. But I don't know, I think where the research says is that, yeah, but did things really change for these people afterward? Mm. And, uh, and that's kind of murky on that end. And, you know, but maybe what, uh, uh, and going back to the article, I think we talked about that a little bit. You know, the, the, so this thing, that I think it was called a CISD, uh, Critical Incident Stress Debriefing or CISM uh, Management. So it's, it's a system that was uh, thought up a few years back and the guy who, who uh, came up with it, I think he was a, he was a fireman. And, uh, and there are a lot of similarities with police and fire, no doubt. But, uh, but I think there is a difference in terms of, uh, you know, generally speaking, I want to say that, that firemen are more communal and uh, firemen or police are, tend to be, you know, depending on the agency, uh, a lot more individual. Right, like more agency, you came in, you got your car, your car keys, you went on the road by yourself. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get another officer while you're out on the road. Uh, sometimes you handle most of the stuff by yourself. You know, firemen go to things in groups. They stay in their station house and they have uh, their meals together. You know, they're very, it's just a very different vibe. So, you know, you think about a, an approach that's designed for, say, firemen. Is that going to work as well for cops? Um, maybe not. You know, maybe that one is uh, because of the nature of the people that you're getting in each profession. Maybe you have to tweak it a little bit. And uh, so one of the things that we talked about in the article is maybe having, um, you know, instead of just a straight up debrief where, you know, everybody kind of sits around in a circle and shares their experiences about what happened and, uh, you know, what they, what they saw and heard during that time. Maybe what you have is, you know, more of a workshop type of a thing where you have people doing hands-on kind of stuff to where they're not necessarily focusing so much on this incident itself, but, you know, being able to kind of get involved 
and a constructive kind of exercise while they're uh, engaged and maybe kind of talking about the incident. So changing it up a little bit, maybe that would be uh, a little more beneficial because I think as a lot as a lot as a rule, I know in my my own department. Um, so we had a a group that did these debriefings, and uh, so most of the I don't know about everybody, but there were uh, several people that referred to them as the hug a bunch, <laughs> right? So very derogatory name, right? So and that kind of conveyed a very negative mm. image, right? right? So who wants to go to talk to the hug a bunch? Uh, well, I'm not going to talk to them because that's not, you know, they're they're kind of frowned upon. <clears throat> Versus, you know, I see departments have um, they're very they very much have embraced. Here's this thing, we have this group, we have this peer support group, um, talk about stuff, right? It's it's uh, there's no stigma attached to it. It's very, you know, kind of encouraged, very friendly. It's very uh, uh, well received. That has a lot of uh, positive impact. I know Boston, I think they had one of the first ones for that. And, you know, this, I don't know how, how many years it's been going, but it's been quite a while as far as I know. And, uh, okay, cool. You know, if you know that the, the, the department embraces it and you know that you can trust these people, because that's a thing too, right? So there's, gotta be, there's a trust element. Uh, if you go to this debrief, and everybody, people say something, they disclose things in this debrief that somebody runs their mouth on outside of the group on and shares it with everybody, right? Well, that can, that can create problems. Mm. But if you have a situation where you know what you say is contained to this group, then uh, everybody respects that, then you're more likely to do the work that needs to be done while you're there. Um, so there's that, that perception. So it really, it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky thing to balance all, all of those little details. And, and, you know, let's just say there is potentially criminal charges pending on, let's say it was a shooting. You know, how, how, how much are you going to disclose during that time? Probably not a lot because uh, you, you shouldn't, yeah. uh, uh, you know what I mean? And, and so that can interfere with the you know, effectiveness of this type of an exercise. So what really, you know, is, is there really something that's going to work? Um, and then how to how to implement it that's kind of a tricky thing yeah yeah so obviously you um uh, suggest that departments um have some type of critical critical incident stress debriefing team system um or maybe even uh, a number of departments right if you're in an area where it's smaller departments you know mm -hmm. you know 10-man departments maybe all get together and and, and really create create something that you would suggest that right yeah, in fact, my uh, the county that I live in, we have a I'm part of the uh, their group that's there. They have volunteers, mental health people, and people in law enforcement that are associated with it. So, if there's a smaller agency or you know an agency that doesn't have uh, access to that kind of stuff, uh, they'll just call up and they'll say, "Hey, can you assemble a team for us? We just had this incident, and and then they get these people together, and here you go. Here's this this team of people that." Can do this function for you. So I know a lot of, uh, in, in Michigan at least, uh, there are a lot of agency, a lot of counties seem to do that. Um, I don't know about other states, how they work. I would assume it's it's a, a pretty well-known model. It's been uh, in place since, <clears throat> I think it was the 80s or 90s, we had a, a postal uh, shooting uh, incident that uh, at a post office that was pretty uh, uh, nationally uh, covered 
And since then, I want to say a lot of these things got in place. And I, again, I don't know if it reached out to other states, but uh, but throughout Michigan, it, it it was pretty well implemented after that. Mm. Is there a way to break this the, the stigma behind mental health in particular? No, no, uh, generally uh, amongst the population, and in particular amongst uh, you know these rough, tough cops who you know go around calling things the hug a bunch. And is there a way to break the stigma and let people know it's okay to be? vulnerable even though we would socialize not to be is there a way to break that you know i, I um i'm seeing well and i'm sure it's, you know you can uh see how uh males are in our society now like a current generation right so there's this there does seem to be a different way that we're kind of being socialized in terms of um gender roles what it's supposed to look like yeah, that's true. So, so, I mean, you know, you can say that's good or that's bad, and that's a whole different discussion there. But right, uh, right, right, right. anyway, in any event, maybe the the benefit of that is that uh, you know you start to look at things differently. You can start talking about feelings, and then all you start to do, uh, you can look at mental health as being okay. I, I, you know, I think people are seeing mental health as less of a stigma in general. Um, so that you know that's potentially good. That you know, men at younger ages, you know, starting to come in and, and try to work on things is a healthy thing. But, you know, as far as, uh, you know, how do you get that to the police population? I don't know, uh, you know, because I thought, you know, when I got involved in this, one of the things my, in my, for my uh, dissertation, I was trying to do a, some research with uh, surveys and, and reaching out to different police agencies. And I thought, you know, my credentials might speak for themselves, like, hey, I'm one of you guys. And, uh, so, uh, as it turned out, I got very little in response. Uh, it was you know, maybe 10%, which I guess is kind of normal. But I thought, you know, well, you know, because of my, you know, who I am and what I've been through and, and all that kind of stuff, that would have got me into this group, right? But I don't think it's that kind of deal. I don't think it's like uh, because of who I am. It's just here's this mindset. And, and again, that's because of you know some of the old timers, the views that get uh, passed down. Some of it's the department administration. Um, you know, things about, you know, I guess there are a lot of concerns. Uh, what if you go to a therapist? What if they say you, you are crazy? What if they say you can't carry a weapon? You can't do whatever, right? So this gets in their brain um, and, and they're thinking and they're like, well, I don't want to go see somebody who's going to potentially say something that's going to affect my ability to stay employed. So, you know, there's a concern of that. There is the concern of seeing, being seen as weak by coworkers. So until we kind of change the culture of some of that stuff, to where it is just a regular thing. Um, I don't know how you get rid of that, you know? And, and so maybe, you know, if you had mental health more closely related to the police, um, you know, maybe that would change it a little bit or maybe it pushes them further away because you start working with some of these mental health people and you see, well, yeah, I don't know if I can really trust them with what I need to deal with because they have this other whole other agenda. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a tricky balance. I guess it's like, you know, how uh, police, we generally look at attorneys, right? We not very, I don't know about where you're at, but, you know, more often than not, we look at attorneys right off the bat as we can't trust them. No, no, we do the same thing here in Connecticut too. Yeah. <laughs> they work for the opposition, right? So we can't trust them. But then you start to get to know them a little bit. And, I, you know, I would say that, you know, uh, over over the years, I got to know a couple of attorneys and like, ah, okay, yeah, I guess they're they're decent people and you can start, start to have relationships with them. And, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it is a little bit more of that just getting normalized, getting, being around a little bit more. 
And, and for right now, you know, most agencies, we don't have contact with mental health people. They're out, you know, this other uh, entity that we don't know anything about. And, and in general, you know, things that we don't know anything about, you know, humans are, uh, we tend to be distrustful of that. Mm. You know, as we get to know, as we get to learn more, uh, get more exposure to, then, uh, you know, we get a little bit more comfortable with it. So maybe that really is the answer is uh, like so many other things is that, you know, you open that, open that world up a little bit, uh, it becomes more normalized and, uh, and then we take more advantage of it. Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Um, do women uh, struggle in the same ways that men do after some type of traumatic in incident? Uh, particularly women in uh, general or women cops? Well, both, both women in general and then women in, in law enforcement. Yeah, well, I think specifically women in law enforcement, um, it's probably a little worse because, um, well, first off, I think it's still what 80, 80, 85% men. Yeah, law enforcement probably yeah. so uh you're not going to have very much in the way of uh you know uh, peer support as a female i mean you do but you know it's a little different dynamic and and you know i think in that females in police work generally have to portray this uh even just a little uh above <laughs> uh what you know what men are kind of uh portraying because they don't want to look weak especially right right, uh, right, right, right. it's a harder dynamic i think and uh but you know i think one of the benefits is that you know females are more likely to come into therapy so you know they have a, a better likelihood of working through whatever's going on um once they do that <clears throat> but in general you know uh, there are a lot of things that women do uh, that are healthier being able to talk about feelings being able to know cry in front of somebody be able to uh, talk to a friend about what's going on about how they're feeling that you know men just don't typically do and uh you know and that's that's something that is to their their credit to their benefit that they it, it helps them to work through things very good uh and so you uh based on your work there and i assume your your traumatic experiences you wrote a book uh, after the smoke clears, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, um, um, uh, it was a fluky opportunity. Uh, I guess there was, um, there was a guy that had written the first edition of it um, several years ago, and I came across it, and uh, it was so much about what I was trying to talk about. It was weird. It was just, uh, wow, this is, this is the same thing. And uh and then I, and I don't remember how I got in touch with the publisher, but anyways, uh, did, there was an opportunity for a second edition and the initial author didn't, uh, he passed on, on it. So I had the opportunity to uh, revise it. And so it's basically kind of a, a, about the things to expect uh, after a shooting. You know, we think we get kind of uh, in our head that the biggest deal is the actual shooting. And it's not really, I mean, it's not, I mean, that's a little, you know, a couple seconds type of deal typically. Uh, it's the stuff that happens afterward that, uh, you know, is the big eye opener, the thing that we have to deal with. So, you know, physical changes, uh, things that happen to you, like with the, we were talking about the sleep and hypervigilance and all the symptoms of that stuff. Um, and then, you know, changes in how people react to you and the, the relationship changes, departmental stuff. And then public perception, if you're dealing with, 
uh, like some of the things nowadays with, um, you know, you, you have some, something where you're involved in a shooting and then that's on the news uh, nationwide and you're portrayed as this really horrible person. Um, you know, the impact that it has on, the, on not just you, but your family as well. So there's that, that piece of it. I do talk about my personal experience with uh, what I went through um, and, and, you know, just the, the initial thing, recovery, trying to get back to the work. And, and then I think at the end, it was uh, about uh, trying to talk about how, kind of why this happens, all right? So why are, why are we behaving this way? So just kind of my, take my clinical uh, experience or uh, knowledge and putting that piece out there too at the end. So just trying to understand why do we do what we do? Yeah. And TV, uh, as um, TV really paints a distorted image for people, right? They see these television shows and, you know, cops shoot someone and, you know, an, an hour later, he's back on the street, you know, <laughs> and people think that uh, people think that, you know, um, I've tried to talk to people and say, listen, you know, we we process things. We have to go through things. Um, we, we're taken off the street. Our, our, our guns are taken away. And that that has a mental uh, effect on our psyche as well. And so, um, you know, they think that we just can just shoot someone and just go back to just daily life and go to the grocery store like and pick up the eggs on the way home yeah <laughs> just go shoot somebody else and then they just kind of keep doing that kind of stuff right like it's no big yeah. deal yeah and that would be a yeah. scary cop to find right that wasn't affected by that yeah yeah um do you uh do you yeah so you um there was an officer uh someone i did a show with someone and they said that an officer uh, this is in california that the officer had shot one person and then two weeks later i, I think it was two weeks later uh, and he had shot someone else. So I couldn't understand why this officer was on the street. Do you see a difference or, or problem with different departments as far as their, um, uh, this may be out, outside your, your scope there, but I'll try anyway, <laughs> as far as how they how they deal with officer-involved shootings, taking officers off the street, uh, you know, a standardized practice about what we do, how do we handle this in order to get these people, number one, the help to, to facilitate, facilitate the legal process. Do you see a, a problem with, with that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, what you find, and I, I've seen, uh, I've talked to a lot of officers that uh, after something uh, big like that, the next day they're on the road. Right, and right, right. Uh, because they're small enough that the manpower, they don't have the ability to say, well, let's put you on a desk for a while till we get this sorted out. Um, you know, like you, yeah, you're expected to do your job, right? So uh, that that's hard because then, you know, this officer is not dealing with whatever. And you know, just as a liability thing, you think about as a department, like if it is a questionable thing and, and then you go out, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, caught up in trying to process all this information and it clouds your judgment on another situation, um, even if you're not wrong, but just to say, you know, your, your judgment is somewhat impaired on it, um, that, you know, liability wise can create problems for some agencies. But uh, so I'm not sure how they, you know, they, get past that or, or maybe it isn't the issue that I think it might be, but uh, just as a general thing, it seems like it makes sense to say, hey, let's, uh, let's uh, take you off uh, this for a moment and take a step back while we're, while this is all, because there's a, there's a different, there's a whole process, right? So I know for myself, um, there was a warrant requested against me for the, the killing of this person. Um, and, you know, which, as an officer, you're like, you're what? I'm <laughs> yeah. part of this criminal investigation and what? 
yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, so uh, my fate's in the hands of, uh, of somebody else to, I mean, so that's a stressful thing. That's a very, uh, you know, something that if it's on your mind, you know, until you get some, you know, closure on it, um, and it's going to impact your thinking. And, you know, any of these things, you know, if we're lucky, we, you know, and for most cops, I mean, from, we'll go for our whole career and never have anything like that, right? Some cops seem to have, a, a, like, they just, it finds them or they find it or however it works out. But, uh, you know, for the most part, if, uh, you know, we have that time to kind of process it and work through it, uh, it just works better for us to be able to, uh, to be better for whatever we're going to encounter next. One big thing that you mentioned is uh, the isolation that officers go through. I think this was in the article that they go through from other cops, right? They, they, the other cops will, will not be around them as much. Um, I can remember in, um, now this officer, <laughs> the story, well, I'm not gonna tell you the story, but uh, there was a story uh, in my department in which this officer had really done something really stupid and I had wanted to reach out to him. And I think he was, I think he was my, the deputy chief at the time said, this is not the case, <laughs> you know, you kind of just want to let this guy just kind of go. And so, I, you know, but he had done something dumb, but officers, as we mentioned, you know, you don't know if he did anything dumb. You might have a questionable shoot that's like you said, in the hands of the prosecutor or whatever. Um, and so, but officers will isolate themselves from you. They'll stop calling you, stop texting you, and, and that can add more stress. So what would you say to officers who are, uh, I mean, if they did something completely stupid, we, I think we'd all agree to kind of leave it alone. Okay. <laughs> but, but, if, but if it's on the fence or, you know, something that they'll, you think that they'll come through, how would you suggest that other officers uh, um, reach out, suggest, or, or what would you be su your suggestions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, you get that, um, that isolation. And, you know, the problem with that is that that's all that's replaying in your mind, right? That's, that's the only thing that's going on. And, you know, and one thing to kind of consider is that, and, and this is like a, a therapy thing that I'll, I'll talk to anybody about is that, um, you know, in the moment when we do something, we do what at that moment seemed to be the best thing to do. You know, right? I mean, I think most people do the approach things that way. Now it could have been a boneheaded thing, right? But in that moment you were thinking this and that's why you did what you did. Um, and, you know, so right or wrong afterward, you know, you could say, uh, you can take it apart afterward later. But in that moment, that's why it happened. I guess maybe what I'm saying is maybe it shouldn't have happened. You could say that later on, but uh, you, can, you can always get a sense of why somebody did what they did based on what their thinking was at the time that they did it. Um, so, you know, as, as a supporting officer to be able to say, dude, what, you know, what were you thinking, uh, what, you know, when this happened? And, you know, to approach it that way uh, maybe gives them an opportunity to, to process it and to, to work it out or whatever and, you know, and still stay connected, right? Because I think, well, first off, maybe we're reluctant to, to talk to them because if it's a boneheaded thing, we don't want to know anything because then if somebody asks me about it, then I might have to tell, right? <laughs> so if I don't know, I can't tell. Um, but, you know, but again, that uh, that just kind of furthers that feeling of isolation, and uh, you know, potentially you end up losing a good officer through that kind of stuff too, because you know they they start to develop resentments, they start to get an idea that, well, they're not going to have my back when you know I I do my best and I do this I make this mistake, and now I'm going to get turned on by everybody. You know, you start to get that kind of thinking going on uh, with some of stuff, because more often than not, I think you know the people that they hire for police officers tend to be decent people 
Uh, now, does that mean that every decent person we're gonna make good decisions all the time? Absolutely not. Uh, I don't think any of us could ever say that. Uh, and, and certainly in the field of law enforcement, you, you, where you encounter just so many different things uh, throughout your career and throughout the day even sometimes. Um, but you always, as, as a, I mean, I just kind of always have the assumption that people in the moment, in a moment where they did whatever messed up thing they might have done, that was probably the best thinking that they had at that moment. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, yeah, likewise. When, where can we get the book at? Um, is it in Barnes and Noble or where, where is it? Uh, no, I think it's mostly on Amazon, and uh, and then it's through the the publisher. Uh, it's Charles Thomas is the publisher. Um, yeah, I think that's the name of it. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Amazon's the easiest way, I guess. Um, so, but uh, it makes if nothing else, it makes a good doorstop. I'm sure it's a good read. I I usually try to read it, but try to read books before I have people on. But uh, I I will get to it. I I, I will get to it. Well, I appreciate it. It was yeah. great talking to you. Um, and uh, I look forward to staying in contact with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the name of the book for the audience there is uh, After the Smoke Clears, Surviving a Police Shooting, Second Edition. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Doctor have a great day. Pasaic. I said that right, right? <laughs> Did I say it right? Pasaic. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> I apologize. Okay. No worries. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss in the ride between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.